This conversation goes all over the place, but I knew from the beginning that the emotional intelligence of this executive director could handle anything I threw at him. We talked about books and mentors, influencers, leadership, five languages of love, staffing, empowerment. What a joy to talk to Paul. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by experience.care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, welcome back to LTC Heroes by Experience Care. My name is Peter Murphy-Lewis. I'm your host. I'm excited today because I'm talking to Paul Smiley. He's executive director at Gilpin Hall. And he and I were going to try to meet at the Delaware Convention and it didn't work out, but we made it work today. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Paul, I didn't realize that you come from a big smiley background of people who love long-term care. Will you give me an introduction about maybe the first family member who got into long-term care and how you got into it? My father was a nursing home administrator starting in 1970, maybe. So I've been in and around nursing homes since I'm about five years old. So my father was executive director at Baptist Home in Philadelphia, and he passed away in 2002. I did work with him for a little while up there, and I also worked at Beverly Enterprises. And here at Gilpin Hall, I've been here for about 28 years. I have a brother who was an administrator and a cousin who was owned a staffing agency and eventually became a director of nursing for me here at Gilpin Hall. She's since retired. And my wife is a nurse who just left the hospital system and is now at a long-term care facility in Pennsylvania now. So we're kind of steeped in the elderly, taking care of the elderly. I'm going to start off. I already warned you, I asked a lot of questions right off the bat. Let's go through who of your family members, maybe not the most influential, but what family member, when I ask you right off the cuff, had an impact on the way that you deliver care and how? Totally my father, but you know, there's so many more people besides my family. And I feel like the long-term care industry, especially here at Gilpin Hall, which by the way, is almost 200 years old and we're independent nonprofit here in Wilmington. But the people that I've met over my career, of course, my father was the first impact, but I've actually heard you talk to many people on your podcast about how the first time they went into a nursing home. And back in 2013, I started a project upgrade in my life and in my business to try to make things a little bit better. And one of the things I did for that was to start attending all the orientations for new employees. And I would sit in for 45 minutes to an hour and talk with each person and get to know them and ask them questions. And the first question I asked, just like you, was, can you remember the first time you went into a nursing facility? And what was the circumstance? And how old were you? And was it a positive or negative? Because for me, as a five-year-old, the first time I went into a nursing home, I'll never forget. I was a little kid with blonde, curly hair and my father was dragging me along to take into work with him. And a little kid with curly blonde hair, people in a nursing home just melted down and said, oh my God, your hair is so beautiful. We have to pay so much money to get it colored and cut, curled. So I have associated for my whole life, just positive, overwhelming, confidence building associations with nursing facilities. And it's important to find out what people's recollections are and first impressions. Not everybody has those positive first impressions. And so also Linda Schwind was the longtime executive director here at Gilpin Hall. Cheryl Hikes is our Delaware Healthcare Facilities Associate Executive Director. And I have a long-term director of nursing, Rochelle Wilson, and our administrator now, Jessica Bannon. We're just surrounded by really good, dedicated people. So it's very difficult to pinpoint one. There's too many. 
I'm going to ask you why you asked that question in your onboarding and way to it. I'm going to tell you a question that I always ask onboarding because I think you'll appreciate it. Just kind of knowing your emotional intelligence. I always try to figure out people's love language when I'm onboarding them because I realize that's how people want to be motivated is the way that they want to be appreciated. And the way I get them to answer it is I usually ask them, what are you most proud of in the last day? I ask them that on day one, day two, and I ask them all the way to day 30. What are you most proud of something that you've done today? And then I figure out what motivates them. Why do you ask that question? It's because when I watch some of your podcasts, your question that I ask in that first initial interview is, what are you most proud of in your life? Please don't tell me about your kids. We're all proud of our kids. I'm looking for an event that you achieved or an obstacle that you overcame. So I guess the reason I asked the question of what was your first interaction in a nursing home is I'm also listening and I want to hear what it is. I want to know where they're coming from. Why did they come here? Like me, partially, I took care of my grandmother the last two years of her life when I got out of the Marine Corps. And I took care of her at home. And eventually we had to move her into my father's place that he worked. It was a little bit of a rude awakening for me, but I was still going into it with that positive view of long-term care facilities. But I have to tell you, a lot of people don't have a good association with their first interaction. So first I'm listening to hear where they're coming from. And I have to be honest with you, I'm also listening to hear who they are and if they're committed to what we're asking them to do. You know, this is not a Walmart or a tire factory. We're taking care of human beings here. In most cases, in most long-term care facilities, the worst part of their life, they're financially, emotionally, physically, their network of support. Many times a spouse or a sister has passed away that took care of them. In some cases, we see even their children have passed away due to age. And so they're isolated and they're alone and they're not able to do most things for themselves. And they're generally out of money because they've spent all their funds to keep from coming to a place like this. And so to answer your question, I asked that to make sure that the people I'm bringing on board and I'm, I'm going to put in front of those vulnerable residents have a little bit of skin in the game and that they're passing my sniff test so that I trust them with the people we're taking care of. That's cool. I like to hear that. I'm going to mention one other tool that I think that you'll appreciate. And then I'm going to ask you about the Marines. So there's a tool that I love called 36 Questions to Fall in Love. It was published by the New York Times about 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. And not necessarily questions you'll ask on your onboarding, but you might ask three months or at nine months or at two years. And I think they're really cool because it'll help you with retention. I have a whole list, a printed out list that I use during that orientation. And it's so funny because I watched your podcast. I see the same questions and I feel like he somehow got my list and been using my list. Sounds like you and I are reading the same sources. Tell me about what, if I had to get you to answer in a word or two or since or two, what impact did being a Marine have on on you in long-term care or be an executive director, whether it be your leadership or the way that you talk to people or the way you keep organized or the way that you relate? So first, I loved the Marine Corps. And the time that I was in, I didn't love. I thought it was heavy-handed. I was an air wing Marine, so I was not a grunt. And I was right between wars. I didn't see any kind of combat or anything. I just mostly took care of ground sport equipment. But Marines are a loud, gregarious bunch. And I love them. I have a son who's a Marine as well. And my closest friends for many, many years have been Marine. But they're loud and they're obnoxious and they go directly to the point. 
And as a person being managed by Marines, I didn't like that very much because there was not room for discussion. It was do this right now or else. And when I got out of the Marines, I swore that I didn't want to be that kind of leader. I wanted to be somebody who inspired people and persuaded people. And that's the way that I've managed. I needed the Marines to straighten me out and get me to understand how hard things could be. And then I altered my management style based on not wanting to be a leader in that way, if that makes sense. I want to go a little bit in a different direction. And I was going through the notes that I have for this call. And you said something really powerful in our first pre-chat. And you said, we need to think locally, share globally. Can you explain why you inverted that kind of popular... Let me just start quick first. I was a young man in 1981 when MTV came out. You might be too young to even remember how big MTV was at the time. But I was this drummer and I was playing in a band and I was sure when MTV came out that I was going to be a rock and roll drummer and going to be a star and I was going to make it. I still think that way today. I think, you know, maybe I lose a couple pounds and grow my hair back out. I could still pull it off. Our residents now, there's still that 18-year-old kid inside and has that same feeling. So getting back to your question, in the 90s, as the environmental movement came, we started to see this think globally, act locally, pick up the trash. And if you do it locally, it's going to make things better globally. And I think we all got that and we all did that. And now what I'm seeing is I almost want to call it the homogenization in our industry, which is not appealing to me at all. And I say we should go back to our first principles and we should think about who we're taking care of and what's important to those specific people. And so I want to amend what I told you earlier. I think we should, instead of think globally, act locally, I think we should first listen locally, of course, think globally. And then I think we should share locally. I think what works in my facility or another facility locally will work here. In Delaware, it's very, everyone knows everyone else. The regulator all know each other and we all know the regulators. It's different in Pennsylvania and in the larger states. So what works there may not work here. So that's that was how that thought came to be. I've got another resource that you're going to like based on your answer. I spoke with a really brilliant Italian entrepreneur thinker and he has a TED Talk that says, shut up and listen. I think it has 3 million views. His name is Ernesto, Dr. Ernesto Ceroli, and you'll appreciate his approach. I learned a lot from him. Paul, next question I want to go into is is how do you take that philosophy or that saying of listen locally, share globally? How does that play itself out at your work at Gilpin Hall? It's not something I promote. It's just something that I do. And I try to make that presence known. So ever, especially since COVID, we've had these either monthly or weekly or biweekly calls with different regulators and even our association where we all get on and we talk about, you know, what's the best testing process or how do you notify people? And can we have share a procedure for this? It's very beneficial. I don't want to minimize that, but it does get that homogenized feeling. And so we want to say, let's just step back and first let's look up what's the requirement that we're required to do from the original source. But more importantly, let's go sit down and talk with Mrs. Smith or Mrs. Jones or Mr. Smith's daughter and find out how is it affecting them? Because I have to tell you, as much respect as I have for the CDC and the Department of Public Health and CMS, what they presented us to do through this pandemic in many 
many ways was diametrically opposed to what all of us have been doing for 30 years and resident rights and visitation and to put a facility as the gatekeeper to prevent a family from coming in to visit. That's just counterintuitive to everything that we've done. And so as that process unfolded over time and we honed it and we came up with our pads and our barriers and our glass, each place turned out to be different. And I'm glad that it did because you could see what place, what process worked and what didn't. And you could try it at your place or not or develop your own. And I think you have to also give it to your managers to have the confidence in them that what who often talk to the residents much more directly and more frequently than I do. You have to have confidence in your managers and your frontline staff. If you're fostering those dialogues between your residents and your frontline staff and your managers, probably what's going to percolate to the top of that is most likely going to be better than what's written in a CMS so, or an article in McKnight's or what they're doing in Nebraska. Now, all those may be good. They may not be good for what you're trying to do in your individual facility for your individual resident. I want to ask you about your leadership style, and I'm going to throw it at you in a couple different questions, and you can take which one you like. The reason I say it is because I kind of like the variations that people answer when I give them different options instead of just saying what's your leadership style. If I were to ask your direct report what your superpower is, what would they say? Or if I were to ask your 10 peers in long-term care, what would be two or three topics anytime they have a challenge or an obstacle they would call you? What would be their answer? Feel free to answer any of those questions or all of them. I'm going to invert it because instead of telling you what I think my superpowers are, let me tell you what my limitations are. So I'm first and foremost, a little bit of a scatterbrain, but I'm a very good listener. And because I'm sometimes a little scatterbrained, my staff is very good at keeping me on track and telling me what we're doing here and why are we meeting here and what this is about. And I think maybe that the superpower is to give our leadership team and our managers the confidence to act and know that there's a level of trust. The scrutiny's already been done before we interviewed them and before we hired them. And I like to think there's some leader had told me long ago, I'll build the track and you just move the train. And I think that's what I've been trying to do with our people here is I work closely with our board. They're all volunteers. And so they're just people who I can't even tell you how incredible they are and how lucky we are to have them. And I feel like they manage me in that way as well. And they give me the latitude and leeway and the trust to do what I think is best. And of course, correct me where we disagree and understand that they have the authority. And that's what I try to do with our managers as well. I'm going to ask in a different way. What's the hardest part of your job? And when I was thinking about the question, I was trying to answer for myself. And I think the hardest part of my job as a manager is making decisions for teammates when they know how to make the decision. I get easily flustered when I know my team knows how to make a smarter decision than me. What's the hardest part of your job? Okay, confession time. Yes, I host the LTC Heroes podcast, and hopefully you know that by now, but I can't take all the credit. Jason Long, the CEO of Experience Care, told me two years ago that when we started this show, that this new audio platform had to create value for everyone, whether you're a client of Experience Care EHR or not. Then he encouraged me to become a CNA to really help LTC Heroes resonate with caregivers and leaders. And between you and me, he really knew what he was talking about. LTC Heroes has been invited to almost 10 conventions in 2022 to finally shine a light on what leaders like you have been doing for decades. 
It's that sort of knowledge of the industry that really makes me appreciate Experience Care, which has developed a customizable and intuitive EHR that makes clinical financial and billing processes more efficient and accurate. It transforms workflows into something that makes sense so you can focus on what really matters, caring for your residents. The software is used by ALFs, SNFs, CCRCs, big and small facilities alike. Countless users have reached out and shared with me that it really is effective in helping them improve outcomes. I can honestly say that I know my grandparents would be proud to learn that I work at a place like at Experience Care, and I just wanted to take the time to thank Experience Care for sponsoring this podcast. Check out their latest products at www.experience.care. I try never to do that. I try to let people make, I try to let as many decisions be made at the lowest level as we can. I don't want to ever be the micromanager. I hope I'm pulling that off. Maybe I'm not. It's hard. Sometimes you lose a little vision to think that you're doing something okay. But when you get to the level that I've been lucky to get to, you don't always, people don't always tell you what the truth. They filter things because they don't want to expose something they don't want you to see. I think for me, I keep going back to staffing is staffing is the key problem that we're facing now. But for me, the hardest thing, and I try to instill this in our managers as well, is to resist the urge to be the person who's going to do everything. You know, there's a lot of work that each of us has to do. And it's important for the leadership, especially, and the middle managers as well, to be able to get it's such a cliche to say it, but you know, the 10,000 foot view or the 30,000 foot view. And if you're the person who's making the schedule or adjusting the time cards or doing things like that, it's hard to get that view. And so I think the hardest part is to keep provide work and help and assistance to the managers that you have trying to maintain that view without appearing to be on high. And I think the best way to do that is just like we talked about with the resident to listen to what your staff is telling you they need and try to do what you can to provide them the tools. And remember that my job here is to lay down the track and let the train do the work. And I don't want to get in the way of that. I want to follow up with a question about staffing. And I apologize if I stumble around on it because I've never asked the question, so I don't have it clear in my mind. But I think what I want to ask you is if I were to ask you what KPI, what variable, what indicator you are doing the best in when it comes to staffing, what would it be? And I'm going to condition that by saying, and it's not dependent upon external variables. So like, if you're great at recruiting, but you're great at recruiting because there's no other options in your city, let's remove that one. What's something that you all are doing at Gilpin that's uniquely great in staffing, maybe retention, maybe it's your onboarding, maybe it's finding quality candidates that you feel that you all do well. Got to be retention. And especially in our nursing department, we have our director of nursing, Rochelle Wilson, and our administrator, Jessica Bannon, and myself, but mostly those two, really have carved out some things that we've done. So first and foremost, prior to COVID, Gilpin Hall was always a place where as an independent nonprofit, we never could really pay as much as most of the larger change or the hospitals we're paying. And so there's a longevity here. The people who work here stay here for a long time, but frequently they may leave to take another job, but about 60% of them come back, even though they may take a little pay cut because it's good atmosphere to work. In addition to that pre-established, what Jessica and Rochelle have done in consultation with the other managers and our dietary manager and our payroll manager, Mickey 
you, Roberts, is we're doing weekly or bi-weekly and they're small events. They're not a lot of money, but it's like a Taco Tuesday or we might have the kitchen make a bunch of different French fries and sweet potato fries. We'll just open up a little table with steam table with chili and cheese and maybe another day we'll do ice cream. We'll bring donuts and mostly it's a little bit about a food or an item to attract people to come. But the big selling point of it is that the administrator and the director of nursing are the person who are handing out that stuff. And during that time, there's that personal interaction. And I think if we could find a theme for this podcast today, it would be, it's about people. It's about human beings. I talk frequently about what's important to a resident who comes in here. And, you know, everything they've owned for 90 years is reduced to three or four boxes, diaper boxes of clothing and shoes. And the watch that they used to like or the clock or the TV, all of it's different now. And so when they get in here, are they going to get faced with an abrupt person who's going to say, I have to go on my break right now and we have to get you to the toilet and we have to do that in the next 15 minutes. That's not the way anybody wants to go to the toilet. And so I start with the orientation and then I pepper in along. Along the way, these little learning circles, I guess you would call them, where we're interacting with our staff and we're trying to show them this is the way that we want you to interact with people. And this is what we expect of you, whether we have enough staff, we have enough stuff. This is the process. We want you to treat people the way that we're treating you. And it does. It works. And I think my guts are telling me is that they leave here and they maybe go to a second job somewhere else where the culture and the environment is completely different where it's rush, 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 get them done. You line up, I'll take the next one. And they don't like to provide that kind of work and they don't like to work in that kind of environment. Maybe the way I felt in the Marines and then hopefully they're going to come back here. So to answer your question, retention. I think that's what we're good at here. It's a good answer and it tells me a lot about your culture. I want to ask you a question about yourself. You've been in long-term care for a while and I want to ask you what you learned about yourself from residence. And I'll give you a little bit of time and I'll tell you, as I was kind of listening to your answer and thinking about how I would answer that as well, I thought about when I became a CNA, looking back on it, this takes a little bit of time. This is 2020. I didn't realize at the time. I was constantly looking for that kind of tough love grandpa because I had a tough love grandpa. And I was also looking for people with dementia. And I think because I spent so much time in South America, I was think I was trying to ask for forgiveness to my grandparents when I wasn't there for them living in South America when they passed. And I I was trying to find people that looked and acted like them. What have you learned about yourself in working with residents? Well, you know, I'm an, as a Marine, a background of a Marine, a mechanic Marine, not a grunt Marine, but, you know, it's a rigid, tough environment. And then moving into the caring, compassionate side, I was surprised at how much appealing that was to me and how much of all the stuff I do in my job, the best part of it is when you're sitting in a resident room learning about that resident for the good and the bad. I mean, I can tell you story after story. And for me, some of them are just, I don't want to go into too many personal ones and maybe you'll let clean up the podcast and edit stuff out if you think it's not right. But I remember talking many, many years ago to a man who was a, a mild-mannered mailman. 
And I went and sat with him and the staff was complaining because he wouldn't do one thing. So I just went up and spent an hour with him and just talked to him. And he was this mild mannered guy and he didn't want to take baths. And somehow in our conversation, we got to talking about World War II and he said he didn't want to go. But this one woman was just talking and talking and talking and he just pulled out his gun and shot her in the face. And I was just taken aback at like this guy that seemed to be such a mild mannered. He was literally a mail carrier for 30 years and having to carry that around. And the guilt feelings that he had about it and that it was over and so fast and he immediately regretted it, but he carried that with him forever. And maybe that's why he became a mild-mannered postman and that he had been there for several years at the time and nobody had come to it. And then just story after story of that about connecting with residents. So what have I learned about myself? Life is fleeting. Whether it's your grandfather or a young person who loses a child to a fentanyl death or a suicide or a 95-year-old woman whose 75-year-old son dies, it's just as devastating to her. It doesn't seem like it should be, but it is. And so inside, we're all just human beings trying to get to the next day and trying to get some kind of connection from one to the other. And we can do all that within the CMS guidelines and do it according to regulations, but we can do it so much better if we just have a little shortcut to go from one person to another. And I think that's what I excel at. Secondly, I didn't realize on the local Delaware market, I've been speaking up about stuff positively. I don't want to say anything negative, but I think sometimes on calls, I probably say things that other people think about, and I say them in a way that is not insulting or intrusive, but helps us all move that ball forward. I'm going to ask you the same question you ask your staff when you're onboarding them, but frame it a little bit more narrowly. What's something that you're extremely proud of that you might not share with your family or with your staff that you've done in the last 5, 10, 15 years? And I'll tell you specifically why I want you to answer it as honestly as possible, because I think to attract Gen Zs and millennials into this industry, they want to work with people with a mission, with values. So I think your answer is going to show you what your values are. And I want you to take off your humble hat. Okay. So I told you my father was in this business and he passed away in 2002. And at the time I thought he was the Titan of the long-term care industry. And he had been in the industry from 1972 to 2002. So that's 32 years. I'm not sure it's a specific accomplishment, but 2023, I came into the long-term care after the Marines. I left in 89. And so in 2023, I'm now in the industry for 33 years. And it's very bittersweet for me that my father, who I looked up to so much, and I thought was this Titan. I've now passed him in time. I don't know that I've done any more accomplishments than him. And I don't know that I can put my finger on a specific thing. I hope that this project upgrade that I started in 2013 in my life and at Gilpin Hall to try to change this narrative and get to know people. I honestly think that's probably the thing I'm most proud of is that I'm trying to resist the avalanche of, again, I go back to that word, homogenization that's being pressed on our industry and say, this little flower, I can't control everything in long-term care, but I can control this little flower of Gilpin Hall in my little corner of the garden. And I can at least shelter the people who live here. And I can also keep the workforce that we have as good as it can be. And I'll remove the people who don't 
share that philosophy and I'll get them out of the way of the people who do want to provide that. I think that's probably the best thing that I can do is to bring the best people in and keep the worst people out. I hear in that answer longevity and I also hear amazing leadership and the way that you empower your team. Well, it's nice to hear that, but I feel like the portion that I provide is so small compared to what everybody else is doing. I want to be humble. I don't really do much compared to what everybody else is doing here. The heavy lifting is done by a lot more people than me. Paul, I appreciate you taking the time to join me on LTC Heroes. And hopefully if I come through Delaware or if I come through Philadelphia, we can meet in person and I can do a tour of Gilpin Hall. I appreciate your time. You're always welcome. If I'm ever in Chile, I'm coming down to see you as well. That sounds wonderful. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.